0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject manager experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder of Question Mark and EVP of Industry Relations and Business Development at Lonocity, the assessment technology company. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Will Talheimer, PhD, MBA, Principal at Tier 1 Performance. Will is a world-renowned speaker, writer, researcher, consultant focused on research-based best practices for learning design, learning evaluation, and presentation design. At tier1performance.com, Will works with multi-capability teams, helping organizations activate their business operational and learning strategies through their people. Prior to Tier 1, Will founded and run Work Learning Research for 22 years where his research reviews are still available. He's written many award-winning books and is a real expert on learning and learning science. Welcome, Will. It's really good to have you on the
1: podcast. Thank you, John. I am delighted to be here.
0: So let's start with the question I ask everybody, which is how do you get into assessment or learning at least?
1: (laughs) Uh. How did I get into assessment? Well, I am a learning guy I have a background in human learning and cognition that's what my uh, doctoral degree was in uh, was working in the training and development field what my my focus in my work was to help uh, organizations build more effective learning interventions so I would look at the learning science and I would translate that into practical recommendations for trainers instructional designers e-learning developers chief learning officers etc and as I was doing that I realized okay that's good that's a really good starting point to look at the research and design based on that but if we do that alone then we're going to be in some trouble because we don't have good feedback loops we're not learning from our own experience and uh, then I noticed some sort of biases or mistakes that we were making in in, in learning evaluation like we would uh, evaluate uh, only at the, right at the end of a program when everything was top of mind for the learners. So that's kind of biased because we know people are going to forget. And uh, that may, might make us look better than we actually are. So I just got really interested in this. I started studying it, wrote uh, a white paper on it back in like 2007 or something like that. Uh, It really resonated with people. Then I came across some research related to uh, smile sheets or learner surveys, which just completely rocked my boat because they were (laughs) uncorrelated with learning. And uh, so I started, well, can we make them better? So just had a sort of long-time interest in it because if we're going to be a successful learning professional, we need to uh, not only look at the scientific research, but we also need to get feedback on a regular basis on what we're doing.
0: So I remember meeting you nearly 20 years ago. I think it was in 2003 at the first ever question mark user conference in in Miami. And at the time, I had no idea that questions, as well as sort of helping people assess where they are, actually gave direct learning benefits by by retrieval practice. And your keynote, I think, at that conference really knocked my socks off and opened my eyes to something that I've been in the assessment field for well over 10 years and didn't know that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the learning benefits of questions? I mean, how do questions help people learn?
1: Sure. Oftentimes, we think about questions, we think about testing, right? We all came up through the schools, and we were quizzed, and we were tested, and we had exams, but they can be good for learning as well. So for example, uh, one of the things that a question can do is it can encourage people to retrieve information from memory. And we know that if we want people to be able to retrieve information later when they need it, for example, on the job or on a some kind of certification exam or whatever, that by giving them practice in retrieval, we help them be better able at retrieving, right? Makes perfect sense. So that's one thing uh, they can help with retrieval practice. And then they give us feedback. We ask a question, we retrieve the information, we can get feedback about how well we did. So it's good in that area. It gives us repetitions. Also you can use questions before you present learning information to people. And that helps them focus on the most important aspects of the learning material. So there's many advantages to questions from a learning standpoint, not just from an assessment standpoint.
0: And I know that one of the things you've been an advocate of for many, many years is the learning science and how to apply it in the training world. What are the key findings from learning science that our listeners should perhaps put into practice?
1: Well, there's a whole bunch of them. And and one of the things that's sure. really amazing that's happening is that, uh, first of all, the science has really solidified the last 10, 15, 20 years into some really strong recommendations. Um, and number two, which I'm really pleased of, more and more people practitioners, uh, instructional designers, trainers, e-learning developers are using the science of learning stuff. So uh, I mentioned one of them already, uh, retrieval practice, but let me back up from there. One of the things we need to do is to help our learners comprehend. And there's a lot of learning science about how to do that, you know, uh, using worked examples, Uh, not just showing positive examples, but negative examples. Um, Helping people focus on the right areas of the information, guiding people's attention to what they need to pay attention to. Um, But also, in in addition to comprehension, we ought to also help people be able to remember as well. And then there's some really strong recommendations there. One is giving people retrieval practice, uh, better yet, realistic practice. So you set the things they want to remember in real world situations, whether using scenarios or simulations. Um, And that supports remembering. Uh, Another thing that supports remembering is the spacing effect, spacing repetitions over time. So there's really a ton of things. Um, Those are some of the most powerful things.
0: You know, and I think a lot of people don't uh, don't understand that spacing repetition, which I think is a very, very powerful effect. If I understand right, it's basically that if you separate out your learning into chunks spread over time, days or weeks or whatever, it'll be more effective than just giving people all the learning in in one session.
1: Yeah, there is one subtlety to it, though. It's not just about spreading things over time. And that can have a benefit because people's energy, you know if you give somebody like an eight hour training you know, it's kind of barbaric, right? (laughs) You know, so you split it out, that's going to help with their attention and their energy level. But it's really more than that. The spacing effect is uh, the spacing of repetitions and not necessarily rote repetitions. In fact, it's better if it's not rote repetitions, but you're covering the same content, maybe in different ways, uh, maybe using different types of exercises different challenges, different questions. Um, that kind of repetition spaced over time is a really powerful way to help people uh, remember what they've learned over the long term.
0: Yeah, no, in, indeed. And I think one of the things you've also been looking at more recently is nudging and performance science. Is that something that can be helpful within the learning area?
1: Yeah, so we obviously want to use the learning sciences, but there's also these performance sciences that have bubbled up. Um, over in the UK, you guys have the famous nudge unit as part of your uh, government structure over there. And uh, so there's things like nudging, there's performance triggering, there's habit sciences. Um, there's a lot of things we can do that go beyond learning that can also impact improve performance.
0: I know you were a consultant for 20 years, uh,
1: working on your own.
0: Tell me about your new job role with Tier 1. Sure. Uh,
1: So I'm a principal at Tier 1, a consultant. So I help clients with their learning evaluation work. Um, I'm involved in uh, what we call the Performance Institute. So we have workshops and other learning events uh, involved with that. And I, of course, continue to do my uh, speaking, uh, my writing, uh, and my research as well.
0: And what's it like moving from being a one-person operation to being
1: part of a big team? It's actually awesome. Uh, First of all, I get to work with some really smart people and uh, working on teams instead of the Lone Ranger. There's a lot of support, a lot of love. Uh, Also, I get a regular paycheck now as opposed to the ups and downs of the consulting world, of the independent consulting world.
0: Sure. A lot of our listeners will be wondering about how they should evaluate learning effectively. And I I know this is one of your real specialty areas. So how should people evaluate how effective their learning or training is? That's a big question, John.
1: Good. Um, First, what I do with folks is say, okay, why are you doing this? Why do you want to evaluate in the first place? And I usually give them three buckets so they can answer the question easily. Or do you want to demonstrate the value of the learning? Do you want to support your learners in learning or do you want to improve the learning? And we talk about that and that helps people sort of understand what their goals are. I also tend to recommend that the most important thing to do, what's foundational in learning evaluation, is to get information so that we can improve the learning, maintain what's really good, uh, but improve what's maybe not working as well. So that's the first step, you know, figuring out what what your goals are. And then there's some real complications to it. Um, I once was writing an article and I thought that I would sort of display or let people know about some of the common mistakes in learning evaluation. And I thought I might get five or 10 or 15. Well, I ended up with 54 common mistakes that we make. So one of the things in learning evaluation is make sure that you sort of avoid some of those common mistakes. And then, you know, there's all different kind of ways we can evaluate. I've created a, uh, a learning evaluation model, uh, LTEM, the Learning Transfer Evaluation Model, and it's got eight tiers in it. And it starts out with, you know, you could measure attendance, you could measure learner activity. So those are sort of the lower tiers. And I say, you know, that's fine to do. That's great to do. We can get some good formative information from that. But you can't validate your learning based on that. And then we move up uh, to tier three, which is getting learner perceptions. And learner perceptions are good. I think you and I want to talk about this later, John. Uh, So we'll go into that later. Um, But learner perceptions aren't enough. So then going up, we can talk about learner knowledge, uh, learner decision-making competence, their task competence. So that's sort of looking at the learning aspects of this, get good feedback from that. And then we can go further and we can look at, um, has behavior changed? Did the learning make a difference? Did it help people uh, perform better, perform faster, perform more efficiently, et cetera? And then we can look at sort of the results of this learning. And those results can be the organizational results. They can be results for the learner, uh, for their confidence, for their career. We can also look at wider results as well. You know, What effect might this learning intervention had on coworkers? or the community or the environment. So there's really, there's really a lot to it.
0: In, indeed. So the two questions immediately come to mind. Like One of them is I'm sure our listeners would like to hear some of the mistakes, maybe not all 54, but some of them. But also I'm sure a lot of people would be familiar with the Kirkpatrick model, which has the <laughs> four, four levels. Uh, and I know you're not a big fan of of using that model. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your thoughts on on the Kirkpatrick model for learning evaluation?
1: Sure. So the Kirkpatrick model, uh, for your listeners who don't know, I'll give you a little background on it. Uh, the Kirkpatrick model was developed uh, in the 1950s, 1960s. The guy who originally created the four-level idea uh, was Raymond Kitzel. And then Donald Kirkpatrick uh, used that. He created the labels for the four-levels. And he popularized it, so both people deserve credit. I often call it the Kirkpatrick Excel model. So this model, it has some really strong points. Uh, and like all models, it has its weak points as well. So it's really strong on a couple things. Number one, it puts learner perceptions down at level one, sending a signal that they're important, but maybe not the most important. I think that's accurate. The model also is really good in sort of telling us, hey, you know, our ultimate goals are behavior and results. And so that's another really good aspect. The big weakness of the Kirkpatrick model is that it has no learning wisdom baked into it. Learning is put in the level two bucket. And we can evaluate learning by looking at things like the regurgitation of trivia or the recall or recognition of meaningless facts or meaningful Knowledge, but also decision-making ability. Can people carry out a task? Do they have skills? Do they develop skills? So that's a wide variety of things. But if you put it all into one bucket, what happens is that people tend to sort of sink down to what's easy to do. So to give a knowledge check, for example, and we know the knowledge by itself is not uh, does not enable performance. So uh, the Kirkpatrick model, in a nutshell. Their Patrick Cell model had some good things about it, but it wasn't really strong enough. It's not strong enough, um, and after six decades, we probably should create something better. You also asked about the mistakes, so I put that article together a long time ago. But but here's some off the top of my head. So one thing we do is we measure. Uh, we tend to measure right at the end of learning, and that. Is good. It helps us, it gives us a snapshot in time of what people comprehend at that point in time, but it doesn't enable us to look at uh, whether people are going to forget. It doesn't enable us to look at remembering. So measuring at the end of learning is good, but it's not good enough because we know that we want people to remember as well. Um, Another mistake that we make is we use learner surveys and then we say that because the learner says, That they're going to get business results from this. That we've achieved business results, right? Or the learner says that they're going to perform better. So we say that that's a a level three on the Kirkpatrick model. That the behavior is going to change. Well, that's not that's not accurate. We know that subjective judgment uh, has some issues with it. Uh, Not that we shouldn't do it, but we should be very careful about how we do that. So those are just some of the examples. And uh, if people want to search for this, look for. Tallheimer, my last name, and then uh, Common Mistakes in Learning Evaluation. And uh, you'll find that on the web.
0: Thank you. So I know one of your areas of focus now, and in fact, you've written a book about it, is sort of level one learner surveys, smile sheets, whatever you want to call them. Uh, What's good practice in learner surveys?
1: Well, let me start out by saying what's bad practice. Sure. (laughs) Because here's how I got into this. So I came across this research that showed that uh, traditional smile sheets were correlated with learning results at 0.09, a correlation of 0.09. Not only one meta-analysis, but two meta-analyses together. There were over 150 scientific studies. And we know statisticians tell us anything below 0.30 is a weak correlation. So 0.09, virtually no correlation at all. So my first thought was, okay, we should not use these smile sheets. But then I realized, well, they've been a tradition for decades and decades. It's respectful to ask our learners what they think. So can we create uh, better learner surveys? And my answer was yes. So uh, my book, it came out in its second edition uh, this year, just a couple months ago. Uh, is called Performance-Focused Learner Surveys. And one of the problems with the old smile sheets is we use Likert scales we use numeric scales, and those are, are fuzzy. Uh, and I learned this from, uh, I think, one of your earlier guests, uh, Sharon Schrock and Bill Coscarelli, who wrote about this in their classic text. And so w- the problem with that is that our learners, uh, first of all, there's a lot of research on learning and learners. And it shows that learners don't always know uh, what the best learning designs are. They don't even know what's best for them in learning. So when we ask them questions about the learning, we have to be really careful. We have to ask questions that are not biased, of course, but also questions that they can answer that they have particular insight into. So uh, these Likert scales, these numeric scales are too fuzzy, and that causes um, a bunch of problems. So what's better? Well, I've developed... Questioning approach, uh, and people said, "Well, you got to name this something." So I've now now named it distinctive qu- questioning, uh, distinctive questioning approach. And the idea is that you give people uh, more concrete answer choices. In the assessment field, uh, you probably talk about this as using uh, uh, behavioral anchors or anchors. Um, but by having these concrete answer choices, it creates several clear benefits. Number one, our learners are more motivated. You know, when they see all those numeric scales, the Likert scales, their eyes glaze over, you may remember from when we did this in paper-based, people would circle the same number all the way down the smile sheet because they're just not really paying attention. They're not getting into it. If we give people more concrete answer choices, they're more motivated. So that's one benefit. The second benefit is because there's granularity between the answer choices um, they are able to make better decisions. They're more precise and they're thinking about the, the issue you're asking them about. And the third benefit is that the data you get can be much more powerful. typically, with traditional smile sheets, you'd use a five-point Likert scale, put numeric numbers on that, which is a, a no-no, but we do it anyway. And then you get an average. My course is a 4.1. So most of the averages are being 3.8 and 4.5. And then there's no differentiation. People don't know what's good, what's bad, what what's the right threshold should be. And so they get paralyzed. Uh, Real-world learning teams get paralyzed when they get these averages. So uh, a performance-focused learner survey with these granular answer choices can just show, oh, my gosh, people who took our training, 47% of them said they, need, they still need more guidance or experience to be able to use what they learned. Well, that's a very specific thing that people, uh, that when we look at the data, we can wrap our heads around as opposed to these more fuzzy numeric answers. So a whole bunch of benefits, and I'll give you one more. And this may be my favorite sure. one, and that is that um, we're not just collecting data with our, with the questions we're ask we're asking, we can actually send messages. I call them stealth messages, but it's really like the nudging idea, that if we ask a question about after training follow up, uh, what supports are you getting? Or are you likely to get after training? That sends a message to the learner that they should be getting uh, supports. It sends a message to the trainer that maybe there should be supports provided, and to the instructional designers. Um, and it can get even more um, specific than that. Let me give you a, a great story. Uh, it's it's in the book. I happen to know it's on page one sixty three because uh-huh. uh, Ian Blake, the guy who the story is about, uh, just talked just yesterday on LinkedIn, posted about it. And so uh, Ian was using this question, the one about the after-training supports, and he modified it a bit. He tailored the question to his audience, and he added one line in there. And remember, the learners are answering this question. And the line was something about, um, I will be uh, added to my instructor's Yammer group, and we'll have discussions after the training. And uh, so Ian's a smart guy, and I uh, work for Tetra Pak in, in Sweden, and he invited the uh, these subject matter experts, trainers in one at a time to give him feedback about this. He was using a change management uh, wisdom, and uh, this one guy came in, and Ian showed him the questions, and he's going through them and giving them feedback, and then the guy came to this one answer choice about Yammer, and the trainer said, that's crazy. That's really a terrible idea. Take that out of there. And, uh, you know, Ian was a little taken aback. This guy left the room, thanked him. The guy got back to Ian the next day and said, Ian, you know, I was thinking about that Yammer uh, question, uh, that Yammer choice, and and I love that idea. I'm going to now use Yammer in all my courses. That's a brilliant idea. Now, think about that. This survey had never been deployed. No learner had ever answered a question. No data had ever been collected. And yet this question had already had an impact.
0: Mostly by encouraging people to think about how they're going to motivate learners to apply the learning and provide the support afterwards is sort of critical for the learner to be successful. Yeah, you can
1: make all kinds of messages. You can ask a question about, um, you know, how well did this this webinar keep people's attention? That sends a message that keeping people's attention in a webinar format is really important. You can ask lots of questions that send messages to your learning team itself and to your stakeholders. Like one of the One of the options is um, I will have my manager uh, there to support me after the learning. Well, that sends a message to the senior team when you show the data. Well, look, oh, the manager should be involved. Uh, People might not think that. We've always in the learning field, we're always sort of frustrated that we can't educate everybody around us. certain things. This is a way to do that in a stealthy but powerful way.
0: So I've read the first edition of the book a few years ago, and I've just bought the second edition, which I just just started. And I would certainly recommend, I guess, probably anybody new should start with the second edition. Very, very thought-provoking. And by the way, if you're enjoying this podcast, please uh, follow or subscribe to it to listen to future episodes. But Will, can I go on to ask you, what about tests? Because a lot of our Uh, listeners will be involved in testing. So how are tests useful in learning evaluation?
1: Well, tests can tell us about uh, whether people have learned the knowledge. They can tell us about whether, they can give us hints anyway, about whether learners can make real world decisions. Um, And we can also use testing for actual behaviors as well. Uh, So uh, those are all opportunities, and uh, what I tend to encourage is the sort of higher level. The more you can make it like the real world, uh, the better, the more authentic the test is going to be, the more you can predict their real-world performance.
0: So essentially, if you're testing as part of learning evaluation, ask questions that are are relevant to real-life Work stuff, not just necessarily sort of facts learned in the in the training, but sort of how they apply the training into work-related tasks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's subtleties here, right? So let's say you're training um, a cashier, uh, and one of their jobs is to look at an, uh, an avocado and know that the the code for that is four zero one one or whatever it is, and that's a real important part of their job. So measuring their knowledge of that. Um, you know, showing them an avocado, you know, asking them what the number is. That's an important part. So testing them on the knowledge would be great. But let's take uh, a salesperson. And oftentimes salespeople get taught about a new product and the features of that product. Now, we could test them on their knowledge of the features, and that's okay. But it's not a feature knowledge that's important. It's how they use that knowledge in conversations with real or simulated potential sales, people that are buying the car, right? And so uh, it'd be better to test them on uh, how they use that information in real world uh, or realistic kind of conversations.
0: What, so what about the future? What areas are you working in? What areas do you think learning evaluation needs to, to move into? Or?
1: Well... The, the learning evaluation field is sort of in a state of uh, flux a little bit. Um, certainly some of uh, my work, the performance-focused learner surveys and LTEM are creating waves. Also, there's a lot of sort of data analysis stuff. There's sort of visual dashboarding of information. Um, there's, In some sense, there's this big, there's almost, and it's sort of a quiet Debate is going on in our field, and that is, should you measure learning or should you measure results?
0: Sure.
1: Now, the simple answer is, well, why don't you do both, you idiots, right? (laughs) But uh, there's a lot of people that say, hey, no, don't focus on learning, don't measure those things. Those are not important. We need to measure results. I think they're crazy myself, uh, because if you do measure results, okay, you got you got a result. Well, uh, could the learning have been better? Uh, if we get bad results, we don't know then what caused that effect. You know, was it that people didn't comprehend the information? Did they not believe it? Were they not motivated to apply it? Did they not remember it? Um, did they not feel they could take action? Did they not know how to overcome obstacles? You know, if you don't a- ask about these learning factors, then just measuring results can be problematic. So there's a, that big debate. The other thing is, and, and this is sort of a, a, an idea I've been playing with. I'm not 100% confident in it, um, but I do, I do kind of like it. I'm, I'm looking for input. So if anybody wants to get back to me, that's great. So we evaluate for a reason. Right? We don't just evaluate to collect data. We evaluate to make better decisions, take better actions. So if that's the case, uh, maybe we should start with our decisions. What decisions do we have to make on, on the learning team? And then work backward from that to figure out what we would evaluate. So we know some of our decisions are around Uh, learning design, what the right learning design is, what the right learning deployment is. So then, okay, if that's one of the things we need to know, how would we use evaluation to help us make those decisions? Um, We have the issue of what content to teach. Well, what's the best way to evaluate that? We could try to figure that out. Um, We have questions about uh, what kind of behavioral changes that we want. Well, if these are the behavioral changes we're looking to accomplish, then and what decisions do we have about those? And uh, what data do we need to collect? So working back from decisions, I call this LEADS, L-E-A-D-S, learning evaluation as decision support. So I think there's something to that. Um, and uh, I've been playing with what, those, what that might be yet. It's not fully formed, but I think that could be a particular future uh, as well.
0: Interesting. And where can people find out about your work?
1: Uh, Well, the Tier 1 website is a good starting place. That's tier1performance.com. Also, um, I've maintained my uh, personal website, worklearning.com. People can go there. I still have a lot of the articles and blog posts there that I've been writing about uh, for years on learning evaluation, learning science, uh, etc. cetera.
0: And thank you. And if I can squeeze one more question in. So if if somebody's doing learning evaluation, what's the single biggest improvement they could make if they just want to improve what they're doing?
1: That's a tough question because it really depends on where they are. I will tell you this, that some people have this in <laughs> it. I know everything depends, right? <laughs> of course. But that would make a boring, a boring podcast, wouldn't it? It depends where people are. And here, here's one of, the, one of the things that um, I think is important to remember. So, um, you know, we have this image of our learner surveys as not that important, right? Everybody poo-poos them. And not, not that important. Um, but sometimes that's the best place for an organization to start. They're already using, and we have to think about this as a change management Right. How do we get people to change? And sometimes uh, if you if people have a process in place, if you can improve that process, that's the best way to get started. So sometimes I say to people, again, it depends where they are, but okay, first step, why don't you try to improve your learner survey? You can take it from a traditional smile sheet um, that focuses on satisfaction and course reputation and bump it up to one that focuses more on learning effectiveness. So great starting point. People see they get better data. It gets them intrigued. They've seen the success in learning evaluation. So then they might go to the the next level.
0: That sounds like a great answer. (laughs) Thank you, John. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, no, that's good. Um, beyond that, because I know people want to go beyond the learner surveys, which is good. I recommend it in my book. I say over and over and over and over again, don't just do learner surveys. Um, So the next sort of sweet spot, I think, is moving from knowledge checks to scenario questions. Um, Scenarios are much more authentic. They're more related to the real work performance that people have to uh, engage with. Um, They're the the sweet spot. You know, simulations are really complex and wonderful, but they tend to cost a lot of money, etc. Scenarios... Are a relatively inexpensive investment um, to create much better uh, learning assessments. Now, they're not as easy as they look. You know, you look at a you look at a, a scenario question, you go, Oh yeah, I can write that. Well, not so fast. It's not as easy. I teach a one day workshop on how to write scenario questions, but I don't expect people in my workshops to be experts when they come out of that. It takes a lot of practice. It takes iteration. It takes feedback. But still, scenario questions are uh, sort of for bang for the buck, uh, bang for the pound, bang for the euro, uh, you know, really good investment. Did you notice that, what I
0: did there? I tried to be very global and inclusive yeah, well, and, uh, and uh, for other Asian and African currencies as, as well. Thank you, Will. Uh, I hope our listeners have really enjoy, enjoyed that. Will, uh, you, you're, you're brilliant and, and, and insightful. And thank you to our audience for listening with us today. We really appreciate your support. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, why not follow us through your favorite listening platform? Also, please reach out to me directly at johnandquestion.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going you can also visit the question Mark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars we host monthly thanks again and please tune in for another exciting podcast discussion we'll be releasing shortly